being with us today. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in one, Psalm 119 today. It's somewhere in the middle of your Bibles. If you uh, find a psalm that seems like it never ends, that's your psalm for today. So uh, Psalm 119, uh, toward the back half of the book of Psalms, we'll be looking, from, uh, looking at the uh, first part of that psalm. Uh, in just a little bit, uh, you know, being on vacation this past week gave us an opportunity uh, to unwind and, and distress from um, most of life's demands. Uh, uh, maybe you're someone that uh, when you take some time off, uh, you're completely off the grid, you know, you just completely um, uh, disconnect or uh, we use the word a lot, you completely unplug from uh, the world and from responsibilities. And, and I don't know how long the word unplug has been used as a metaphor for taking time off, uh, but in today's world, uh, it it's a phrase that really uh, speaks to a lot of different angles and different aspects of our lives uh, because we are so plugged in and so connected to so many different things and in so many different ways. Uh, and, and for that reason, it's very hard to unplug from, uh, from life and from all the things that uh, we are normally uh, tuned into. And, and all of us come, have come to benefit from and in many ways rely on um, devices and technology uh, and that, that don't simply make life easier, but in some ways they make things possible. Uh, everything kind of assumes that you have a smartphone or have access to the internet. Um, and it's almost like if you don't, it's so difficult to do what maybe used to be a lot, not, not as difficult. Um, doing simple things like ordering takeout or finding directions um, can almost become impossible um, if you completely Unplug. Now, it's hard to unplug in today's world. You, you might be able to delete or avoid certain apps for a certain period of time. Um, you might be able to disconnect from certain avenues or certain channels, but you just really can't manage to totally pull the plug on all communication avenues um, that a phone or that the internet provides you. And if you can, God bless you. I, I'm glad, but it's hard for a lot of people to do so. Um, now, I know there are some that might can manage better than others, but, it, but I'm not too proud to admit that uh, it, it's hard to truly and completely unplug. Now, while I did manage to stay off my laptop and, and uh, until the last day of the trip, um, it, it's never even a, an option to me or never came across my mind to put down my phone. Now, I was able to avoid work-related stuff, but, but like I said, our phones and our electronic devices just enable and unlock so much that really benefits our lives whether it's calling or communication, uh, whether it's staying informed about news or weather, or, or whether it's just having access to information or entertainment. Um, it, it, you know, you don't need five different devices in today's world. You can pretty much get one thing that almost does everything. So that's why it's hard to truly unplug. Uh, I guess my point in sharing all this with you is that there are some things in life that we would consider resources. Resources that are essential products and tools that improve or facilitate our lives in some measurable, quantifiable way. And, and maybe you have these readily available at all times. Maybe you always are within reach of these resources, these products, these tools that you think that are essential, that improve and make easier certain aspects of your lives. Uh, maybe you don't leave the house without these things. Maybe you always make sure they're nearby or at least obtainable. Um, there are things that are sort of an extension of you as a person. Uh, it's just naturally normal that you always have these things or that they're not far from you. Um, these products, these tools, these resources, we consider uh, essential to our, for our ability to engage with life, be productive in life, and respond to anything that might come about in life. And, and, and for those very reasons, I think we can agree that some things are so resourceful, some resources are so beneficial 
that we could never imagine or consider letting go or giving up access to. Wouldn't you agree that there are some resources, and you may have your mind on things that are completely foreign from the things that we've already mentioned, but there are some resources, there are some things that are so beneficial that you just can't even imagine a world where those things weren't just common practice, where those things weren't available to everybody. You can't imagine, and maybe our world has changed its way for the better or for the worse. Our world has become so dependent on those resources that nobody could even fathom a world without those resources. You know, Every generation or a few has a few, has a few things that I think almost everyone agrees are game-changing resources. That there's a point in time when there was, wasn't something and then there was something and everybody knows, hey, things changed when these things came on the field. Throughout history, there are things that maybe you don't even think about, but when these things came on the scene, they were truly game-changers. Things like the nail. You ever think about how reliant we are on nails and everything that came out of nails, screws, and all the things that we use to connect wood and, and so forth? Things like the wheel, things like the light bulb. And how about the compass? And it didn't even dawn on me until I was just doing some research over the last couple of weeks. Just think about how, how, how just we assume that, that a compass is in everything. It's in our phones, in our cars. We always know what direction we're going in, right? Because there's road signs and because our car tells us and our phone tells us and maps tell us. But imagine a world when there wasn't a compass and there wasn't the ability to just know, hey, I'm headed this direction or that direction. I know there's the sun and all that. But again, imagine a world when this wasn't just part of our devices and part of our normal, uh, you know, assumptions about life. These things made the world different and in most ways they made the world better. And could you imagine a world where these things were not just available and, and, and a part of everything that we put our hands on? Uh, think about all the things that these have been integrated into and optimized for, you know, over the past 100, 150 years, uh, of course, we've seen inventions, innovations, and improvements that have made information accessible, have increased productivity. Um, I think you could look at the resources that became household products prior to the 20th century, so pre-1900. Think about all the things that came into the world back then, and I think we would call those true inventions. Things that, uh, that took resources from the world, natural things, and harvested and harvested and made them into, into tools, into resources that we can all put our hands on or we can all you know, you know, immediately and readily um, benefit from. These inventions widened our platforms. They expanded our reach as a people. They enlarged our footprint and gave us the ability to go farther in this world. Things like the printing press, things like combustion engines, things like electricity, transportation, all these inventions truly widened our platform as a people, expanded our reach, enlarged our footprints. And again, and, and we just think about a world post 1900, it's just completely different than what came before. Now, because since 1900, these inventions have been innovated. These inventions have been tweaked and have been channeled to bring even more amazing inventions into our world. And I think over the last 120 years, you can call most of the things that have been invented innovations, that they've built on these past inventions, that they've took these things like electricity and like transportation and, and basis for our technology, and they've improved on those things, and they've taken us deeper as a society, and they've built upon that foundation that was laid uh, over those hundreds and hundreds of years that kind of set the stage. Now, things that were already achievable became more available with greater ease and more refined 
here we are in 2021, we've gone deeper and wider because of so many resources that we just couldn't imagine a world without. And again, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but I think all of us have an answer or two. What resources could you not live without? Now, there are things that you immediately think of, and there are things that if someone were to point out, you would think, wow, I didn't even imagine that that was something that, that, that there was a world when that wasn't available or that wasn't a resource. I think all of us could say there are some resources that have improved our lives that we just could not imagine not having. Now, maybe some of those older inventions come to mind. Maybe you'd say something that's pretty common, you know, technology, computer phones. But today's message thankfully isn't about any of those things uh, uh, because I'm not an expert in any of those things. I'm barely an expert in, in, in some of the other things we'll talk about, but uh, this is not a message about those things, but I promise this conversation was not a waste of our time. Uh, today, I want to set up a new study, and what we're going to do is we've set up a new study that we're going to begin today and spend the next couple of weeks talking about. Uh, we're going to be spending a few weeks studying Psalm 119. Now, there are not many chapters of the Bible that you could do a multi-week study in. You might could do a multi-month study in this Psalm, but don't worry, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to be studying Psalm 119 over the next couple of weeks, which is by far, probably you know this, the longest chapter in the Bible, but that's not why we're studying it uh, for all these weeks necessarily. Um, long does not always mean better or most important. That's what you say after most sermons that last longer than they should, right? Long doesn't mean uh, better or important. We've watched movies that were far too long and we've read books that are far too long, uh, but it should be noted that no other chapter in the Bible gets close to Psalm 119's staggering 176 verses. Now, just writing 176 verses that are original would be a challenge in and of itself, but the way this psalm was comprised is even more remarkable than that. Uh, while you maybe have heard about its length, maybe you don't know that it's by far the most unique chapter in the Bible in terms of its structure and its format. With regards to it as a literary construct, Psalm 119 is an incredible piece of art. Now, I might not convince you of that, but I want to kind of explain to you why Psalm 119 should be something that you marvel at and, and think, wow, I can't believe that is in the Bible and I can't believe that, that, that that's available to us. Psalm 119 is an ancient acoustic song, so a song that it wasn't set to music. Um, it'd be hard to play instruments for that long, but someone, of course, had to sing it, or at least. An instrument, or, or Psalm 119 is an acoustic song organized around the Hebrew alphabet, and I'll explain, with 22 stanzas and eight verses per stanza. Now, most likely your Bibles have this psalm organized in those 22 stanzas and separated by those eight verses per stanza. Most of your Bibles um, have an even easier way to denote this each stanza as it changes from one to the other. Each stanza and its corresponding verses uh, is attributed to or is connected to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, let me explain. This is why in your Bibles, most likely there is a heading above each stanza. I'm sure you can notice it as we look at our Bibles. Um, above uh, verse 1 and above verse 9, above verse 17 and so forth. Every eight verses, you'll see a, a new stanza. And above each of those stanzas, you'll see a word that might not mean anything to you. Uh, but those words are the 
letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, let me show you, and you can look at your Bibles and correspond. Above verse 1, you'll see the word Aleph. Maybe you'll see a symbol that looks kind of like an X, but uh, again, most of the Bibles you have probably say Aleph. Uh, Above verse 9, you'll see a word that looks like Beth to us, but it's the Hebrew word Bet. Above verse 17, you'll see the Hebrew word, or Hebrew, uh, the word Gimel, which is uh, the third letter of the alphabet. And above verse 25, you'll see the, the word Dalit, which is the Hebrew letter, the fourth letter of the alphabet, Dalit. And it goes on and on and on. If you look throughout this chapter, you'll see those, um, those words like Ha and then Wa and, and, and so forth. Now, here's the cool part, or even cooler part, if that isn't already cool enough. The Aleph stanza features verses that only begin with the letter Aleph. And the Beth stanza begins with, each verse of the Beth stanza only begins with letter, the letter, words with the letter Beth. Now, I could show you in my Hebrew Bible, but it's so far away from you all, but I've zoomed in on it just to show you the first stanza. If you'll notice on the right-hand side of your screen, now of the screen, now, if you didn't know, the Hebrew uh, language was written from right to left, so the Hebrews read from right to left. So if you ever pick up a Hebrew Bible, you're going to be a little confused at first because it goes the opposite way as ours, uh, but they also read the opposite way as we do. But if you'll notice on the right side of the screen, right beside the verse numbers, uh, there, is a sync, there is a letter that is in common with each letter, first, uh, each letter of the words in the first uh, word of the, ver- of the sentence. Excuse me. So you see there at the top of the screen, all the way down the right-hand column, there's that X-looking letter for us. And I know it's far away, but I just wanted to kind of show you. I think you can at least see the similarity. There is the letter Aleph. And again, all throughout this psalm, every stanza features verses that only begin with the corresponding letter. And could you imagine how difficult that would be to organize this song that each verse only begins with a letter, with a word that begins with a letter that corresponds to that letter, that stanza's letter. So again, it's kind of overwhelming to think of. Our English Bibles are so translated, so nuanced with care that they don't, we don't even notice this because the English translators made sure that the awkward words and phrases were ironed out. And when we read our Bibles, we don't notice that every sentence began with the same letter, right? We don't pay attention to that. It doesn't register with us. But in the Hebrew, uh, that would have been the case. Now, the reason why this is important is because the psalmist would have went to extreme uh, trouble and taken all these constraints and carefully crafted a psalm after a format and restriction, only certain words and certain versions of those words and certain variants of those words could be used. So it would have been so meticulous and so difficult. Imagine, imagine being in English class and your instructor gave you the assignment. I want you to write a 22 stanza poem or song and you're gonna begin the first stanza is going to be about the letter A, and every letter, every word, or first word of the sentence is going to begin with A. Could you imagine how difficult that would be to go through each and every verse and begin with that single letter or the word with that letter? It would be overwhelming, and we probably wouldn't make it past B or C, especially when you get into the later part of the alphabet. But nonetheless, the psalmist went to that trouble to use words and craft together sentences that fit into this format. Why in the world did he do this? And why would God ask him to do this if that was the case? Well, let me explain. Psalm 119 is a love letter to God's word. Psalm 119 is all about praising and and extolling the wonders of God's written word. 
It's in the Hebrew Bible, of course, the Bible was written originally in Hebrew. And of course, up to this point, this Psalm is mainly written to extol the first five books of the Bible because that's really all they had at this point in history. Um, the recent history of Joshua and Judges and Ruth had taken place, but they had not been written down yet. So the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when the Old Testament pre-Psalms refers to the word of God or the Bible, that's what they're referring to those first five books. But nonetheless, this is a love letter to God's written word. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, as we've discussed which helps us understand the inspiration behind this psalm. God's word was exclusively made available to the Hebrew-speaking Israelites or to the Jews and was written in their native tongue. So I want to try to help you understand why the psalmist would go to this trouble to write a psalm in all these, with all these verses with, with such, you know, obeying all these restrictions around the Hebrew language. Well, this is my best guess, and this is what most people agree. This psalm is about expressing gratitude for every letter and every word available to them in their language that in turn carried and held the expression of God's heart. Now that might not mean anything to you, but the reason why the psalmist went to this laborious trouble of doing this by paying tribute to the Hebrew language and looking at every letter and every word available to them and saying, I'm going to use all I have in my inventory to show how grateful I am that the Hebrew language and that the language God gave us and the alphabet God gave us, we're going to show our gratitude that these letters and these words have carried and held for us the expression of God's very heart. That's a pretty remarkable thing to set out to do. And, and again, I don't know if, you know, of course God inspired this, but you know, why would somebody do this unless they just truly were grateful for the written word of God in a way that most people have never even began to think about it. Now, Psalm 119 is one of those achievements that you marvel at and you think, I don't know how someone did it and I'm not sure that I would even think to do it, but it's a spectacle to be admired and appreciated. Uh, but more importantly, specifically, Psalm 119 is a passion project meant to stop every reader in their tracks and make us think. Do we hold God's word in the same light as this psalmist did? With the same awe and reverence, the same sense of wonder and appreciation, do we, are we as thankful for God's word as this psalmist clearly was? We began today talking about resources that we couldn't imagine living without or that we would have trouble living without. And immediately all sorts of things come to mind. But the whole point of this is, and the reason why Psalm 19 goes to all this trouble, is Psalm 119 proclaims and posits and proves that God's word is indeed the greatest resource ever to be made available to any of us. Now, of course, you'd expect me to say that. You'd expect me to agree with that. If I didn't, I would be in the wrong field, right? You'd expect to hear that from church. Uh, you'd expect someone doing a multi-week series on one single chapter in the Bible to agree with this statement. But don't take it from me. Psalm 119 is a song written 3,000 years ago by one of the most powerful people in the world, King David. 
David, who enjoyed power and wealth and luxuries untold, goes on the record and dedicates extensive amount of time, most likely had a team of people working with him to get this right, writing a 15-minute long song, extolling God's word as the greatest resource mankind has or will ever lay its eyes or its hands on. Now, maybe you're wondering, what's so great about the Bible? Or maybe you've been told it's important. Maybe you've been told it's the greatest resource you could ever hold. Maybe you hear that today and maybe you just genuinely wonder, why is that the case? I'm a fan of the Bible. I read it every once in a while. I hear it at church. But why would you put this sort of label on it? Is that really the truth or is that just a little bit of a hyperbolic statement? Well, in the opening stanza... We get a taste as to why David thinks, and again, take David's word, not mine, as we get a taste of why David thinks it's so great with regards to the impact it had on him. And listen carefully, the impact it can have on anyone, including you, who hears, reads, and follows the word of God. Now, if you will look down with me at the first stanza, that's the first eight verses, and listen to David Um, Listen to how he begins to extol and praise God for his word. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do not know iniquity or do know iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently and that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly." Now, anytime you see the word your, it's usually followed by a word that is referencing God's word. And we'll break them down in just a minute, but all sorts of different words that really all represent and point to the word of God. But notice what David does here. David draws a straight line connecting God's word to our walk. That God's word has a quantifiable, measurable impact on our walk. Importantly, the quality of our life is directly connected to the content of God's word that we are hearing and receiving and following. There is a straight line connecting God's word to our walk, our way of life, the quality of our life. Now hear me clearly, David isn't referring to how good we may have it, but to how good we are at it or how prepared we are for life because God's word prepares us for anything and everything we may face. Again, that's a big statement to make, but David is putting that out there and he's just getting started. So up up throughout this Psalm, here's what we kind of come to terms with from David's writings. That God's word equips us for our purpose in this world. That you have a purpose as a, as a person, you have a general purpose. As an individual, you have a specific purpose. God's word equips you for the purpose he's given you in this world. There's no purpose he lays on you that his word does not equip you for. God's word directs and informs our walk through life circumstances, opportunities, and challenges. The highs, the lows, and everything in between. God's word is equipping you, directing you, and informing you for anything you may come up against in this life. 
Again, big statements to make, but David has proof. Now, anytime throughout Psalm 119, we've already seen many of these words, but you'll see the Bible referred to in many different ways. You see the word word, commandments, rules, statutes, precepts, testimonies, law. And again, back to the the whole alphabet thing, he's having to format these sentences in such a way, he's pulling every word out of the bucket that he can to make these sentences work. Over 150 times, God's word is referred to through any of these number of labels. Either one of these is referred to, again, all those times over this opening stanza, we've already heard several. All of these are ways of capturing what we have in our hands as the Bible, God's spoken, revealed word, God's promises, God's laws, God's judgments, God's authoritative take, his guidelines, his principles, his testimonies, his witness to his nature. All of those words refer to uh, the word in front of us the word of God that reveals God's heart and reveals God's mind to us. Now, what my goal with this study is, is to use use Psalm 119 as a launching pad meant to create a passion and a desire for, a reliance on and a trust in God's word. Clearly, David had this passion and desire and reliance and trust. He wouldn't have written 176 sentences if he didn't. But what I believe Psalm 119 is for us is a launching pad. It's a platform that we might have in our hearts this same passion, this same desire, this same reliance, and this same trust. And if you don't, it's okay because we are on the launching pad just getting started. And if you do, I believe we're going to add to that through this study. My hopes is that we will strengthen our confidence in and grow our appreciation for God's word. Now, maybe you're wondering, how do I know what is or isn't God's word? And maybe you've wanted to ask this question for years, but you've just been told, hey, here's a Bible. This is God's word. Don't ask any questions. But I want to answer those questions for today because I think it's important that we have confidence so that we might be able to address people in our world that don't have just the kind of the, the, the foundational knowledge and convictions that we do as people that maybe grew up in church. The good news is, and and again, I'm going to show you proof for this. The good news is if you're holding a Bible or if it's on a screen in your hands or on pages in your hands, the Bible is the complete important distinction, the complete word of God. Now, how can you know that and how can you trust that? I want to give you the just couple of minute quick version. I'd be glad to give you an hour plus, but we got to fit it within the parameters. The quick version of why we can believe the Bible we have is the complete word of God. Let's take it in halves. Of course, the first half is the Old Testament. How can we believe that our Old Testament is what God inspired and intended for us to have as the history of Israel, the prophets, the Old Testament stories? How can we trust that? Well, our Old Testament was organized and canonized by a group of Jewish men and, and, and scholars that came back into Israel after the exile from Babylon. You know the Old Testament story? They, they came out of Egypt, they built a kingdom, they were disobedient, they went to Babylon and God brings them out of Babylon and God uses this post-exilic period to get the Old Testament, not all, they didn't mass print them because they couldn't do that, but they brought the Old Testament together as he intended it to be completed from one book to another, filled with history, law, poetry, and prophecy. 
God used Ezra the scribe. He wrote the book of Ezra. You know that. He wrote probably uh, contributed to the book of Nehemiah. He also wrote some other books that we'll talk about. God used Ezra to organize, editorialize, which that means that sometimes there are some places in the Old Testament where things are like, things say something like to this day, or there's parentheses where a different name is given. God used Ezra to organize, editorialize, and canonize, that's the big word, put into completion to canonize the Hebrew Bible. Now, the the only difference between our Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible is the order that those those books are in. And I'll tell you this for an important reason. The Hebrew Bible that we have, the Old Testament that we have, begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi. But the Hebrew Bible begins with Genesis and ends with 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Same books in between, but they have a different order. Now, the reason why those books are important is because Ezra himself wrote those two books. Those books are recaps of the Old Testament from Adam all the way to the post-exilic period. It's meant to tell the story of Israel and to preview the next chapter of Israel's history that's on the horizon. Now, I tell you this because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God up to his day when he was confronted by the religious leaders who had rejected him. And in a statement he makes in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, Jesus affirms our Old Testament that we have, our Old Testament, he affirms it as God's word. And he references the story of Abel and the story of Zechariah the prophet who was killed in the temple. And the story of Abel takes place in Genesis. The story of Zechariah the prophet being killed takes place in 2 Chronicles. So the reason why that affirms our Old Testament is because he references the first book and he references the last book. And by doing so, he is affirming that the Old Testament that we have the Hebrew Bible that his generation had is the, to that point, the completed word of God. But then Jesus said something that they killed him for. He said, the book's not done, guys. I've come to finish it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to complete it. And of course, we know that our Bibles have another half to them, don't they? The New Testament. Now, how can we trust that the New Testament that we have is the Word of God. Well, here's some help with that. Each New Testament book is written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. And I'll explain that. Each New Testament book is written by an apostle. An apostle is someone sent by Jesus for the mission of laying the foundation for the church. The associates are those that would have been writing for on behalf of the apostles. Now we know Matthew, John, Peter, Paul. He was born out of due season, added in later, right? He was, uh, after Jesus rose again, he went to Paul. Now Mark and Luke are associates. Mark wrote on behalf of Peter, the gospel of Mark, and Luke would have been a, a companion of Paul writing the stories. And it was important that Luke wrote the story because Luke was a Gentile and would have gave validity to Gentiles seeking to know more about Jesus. So Paul wanted that book written by a Gentile, and that would have been important, uh, an important distinction. James and Jude, they are brothers of Jesus. So, of course, they are in that same apostolic category. Now, the Bible was completed by their additions. No more apostles. If someone says, hey, I'm an apostle, ask them, is your name one of these men? And these men are in heaven. So they're, just because they have that same name doesn't mean that doesn't count. If someone says, hey, I'm an apostle, they're not. 
these men are the apostles that contributed to and finished the New Testament, finished the Bible. Now, how do we know that God no longer gives new revelation? I think that's an important question to ask because the Bible is referred to as the foundation for the church, reflecting the cornerstone of Christ. Here's what Paul says about the church, that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets. Christ is the cornerstone. And look what he says after that. In him, you are being built. So he refers to something completed and then something continuing. The Bible is completed. The church continues to grow on that foundation. So I thought that was important for us to talk about because you, I want you to have confidence that your Bible is the completed, the authoritative, full and final word of God. Now, when Paul was writing to his protege, Timothy, who would be instrumental in leading the second, second generation church, building on this foundation, uh, Paul tells Timothy, this is the most important thing he can do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living of the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Timothy, your generation is the first to have the whole package. Preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching rooted in the word of God. Now this is big because Paul is alluding to what we learned from Psalm 119. The writer of Psalm 119 knows what we can know. Paul knew what we can know, that God's word can change lives for the better. That God's word is more than just a description of, or instructions, it's more than just names and numbers, it's more than just memorization and repetition. God's word is revelation and inspiration from heaven. Paul told Timothy, the word of God brings revealed truth to the reader, life-changing truth. And I hope that that registers with you today, that God's word contains revealed and inspired the heart and mind of God, told in such a way, designed in such a way, used by God in such a way to pull our heartstrings, to captivate our minds, to change our lives. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart so that there may be change, so that there may be a difference made in our lives. How is this possible? It's because God's word is always accompanied by his spirit. God's spirit was poured out on pages when it was written and his spirit is poured out in hearts when it is read. Do you hear that? That God's word, God's spirit was poured out on pages and when we read the word of God, his spirit is poured into our hearts. We don't worship pages in leather, but the word of God brings to us the Holy Spirit. He breathes through these words. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul said this, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training that we might be complete for every good work. But don't run past that. All scripture is breathed out by God. That it, the reality of God's word is that it is the breath of God on a page. Do you hear that? 
the breath of God. And when we read it with open minds and open hearts, his breath moves from page to person. The breath of God does not have to be called down or stirred up or sang down. It just has to be opened up. The breath of God is wherever the word of God is read and received with earnestness and passion and desire and trust. The word, we find truth that teaches us and reproves us and corrects us and trains us. And all across Psalm 119, we are met with the breath of God and its byproducts pertaining to a number of different topics and different subheadings. As in Psalm 119 addresses different things that God's word offers us. David writes that as one speaking to God, he writes about your word and your law because he is praising God for what God has given him, what God has breathed on him. Now, over the course of this study, we're going to look at a few things that Psalm 119 highlights about God's word pertaining to what sort of resource it is for our lives, all revolving around this one truth, that God's word reveals practical truths and inspires practical differences, reveals and inspires, shows that and shows how. Is that, does that make sense? Shows that it's true and shows how it can make a difference. It offers guidance and healing and strength spiritually, emotionally, mentally, morally, personally, professionally, financially, every category you can imagine. Later on in Psalm 119, we'll read a verse that you're all familiar with, referring to God's word as a pathway or as making a pathway visible for us. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Jesus, of course, said he is the way, the pathway, bringing the Holy Spirit to our lives. A relationship with Jesus Christ opens our hearts up to receiving, empowering, being made new by God himself. And with that relationship with Jesus, new life is made possible to us. And God's word is a map an instruction, inspiration, the wind that directs us down the right way. Every time we read God's word, the Holy Spirit is moving in our direction, seeing to it personally, because he's a person, right? The third person of the Trinity, he is God. Every time we read God's word, the Holy Spirit is moving in our direction, seeing to it personally that you receive help, that you are revived in some way. Mentally, emotionally, personally, professionally, in every area in between. His breath in our minds, in our hearts, opens our lives to so much more than we can find on our own. I mean, if that's true, don't you want that? His breath is reviving and purifying. In closing, I want you to listen to this, next, this second stanza. And listen to how David talks about being purified or being cleaned being revived, all because of God's word. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I've sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. David says it's so important that I fill my mind and heart with your word because it means life or death. David talks about how God's word can revive and purify our lives and how there's so much trying to distract us, even destroy us. And this is the truth. As fallen creatures, sin naturally fogs our vision and bogs down our hearts. As spirit-filled, saved creatures, God's word can revive and purify every single one of us. All throughout the Bible, we see this call to purity. We realize that purity is essential if we are to maintain clarity and avoid regret. Purity is the key for maximum clarity and minimum regret. And we only have purity, according to David, if our minds and our hearts are being cleansed by, being revived by God's word. Over in Proverbs, David taught his son Solomon some important things. You can read it in Proverbs 4. David, Solomon says that we should guard our hearts above everything else because from it our life comes. He says that we should keep our eyes on the Lord. We should listen to his word and not turn our head to the left or to the right and avoid language and words that are wasteful, but fill our minds with the word of God that can give us clarity and help us avoid regret. Now, with this in mind, think about this statement that Jesus made. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't think that just talks about when we die. I think that talks about right now, that we can be purified and God's word can help us see God clearly and know God fully. He says there in verse number 11, that we might not sin against God, that we might be freed from sin and shame, have a life of maximum clarity, minimal regret, a relationship with God and his word. We cannot have a relationship with Jesus and not have a relationship with God's word. Jesus is God's word made flesh. He's the embodiment of all that is revealed in God's word. He died for our sins to release us from our graves in our chains, to give us the Holy Spirit, to open our lives to more. Isn't that what he said? I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is right here in front of us. If we'll just read it. If we'll just receive it, if we'll just apply it, if we'll just follow it, if we'll just embrace it. If we claim to follow Jesus, but not his word, we are following, we are not following the Jesus who embodied the word and who is revealed in the word. But if we do follow Jesus and we trust in his word, his spirit is alive in us, reviving and purifying us at all times. The words we've read today are so simple, yet they're so big for everyone who wants to live a true, fulfilled, and abundant life. So the question I gotta ask you today, have you stored God's word in your heart? The proof is in your footprints. The proof is in your lifestyle. Are you daily being purified by the relationship you have with God and his word? Do you have clarity to follow and obey God? 
Or let's be honest, are you still going about with dimmed and blurred vision, only adding regret to your lives? Can we all agree together today to make a resolution to take God's word more seriously? To handle it more sacredly? To hear its revealed truth and to obey and practice its inspired truth? I mean, why wouldn't we? It's the breath of God on a page moving to every person. Why wouldn't we want to be under that? Don't allow the enemy to keep you from this. Don't allow the world to distract you from this. If you're holding a copy of God's word, you are holding the greatest resource ever. What are you doing with that? Are you taking advantage of it? If you aren't, would you join me today in making a resolution and a recommitment to God's word? Not just to hear it and to read it, but to trust and obey it. Isn't that what James tells us? James, the brother of Jesus, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he's referred to the whole book, and perseveres not being a hearer but a doer who acts. He or she is blessed. You know what that tells me? There is an exclusive blessing available only to those that read and follow this book. Those who know Jesus and want more of Jesus. Do you want that blessing today? In your personal lives, in your financial lives, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your professional lives, do you want that blessing? Here's the reality. You can't just pray for it. You can't just pray for it. You have to look for it. You have to open it. What did Jesus say? Ask, seek, knock. You can't just pray, God, I want that blessing, but I'm not going to look for it or open it. The blessing will move from page to person. Life, revival, purity moves from page to person. The Bible gives us so much wisdom for every practical area of our lives. And if we will trust and obey, a difference will be made. A blessing will be received. The question today is, are we looking for it? Are we open to it? Have we allowed God's word to establish that foothold in our lives, to purify us, to revive us, and to be the anchor for our minds and our hearts? If you don't have that relationship with Jesus and his word, the invitation is to you today. If you've walked away from him and his word, he is saying, hey, I'm welcoming you back with open arms. There's a blessing available if we will just open it up. Don't take my word for it. Don't take David's word for it. James or Paul's word for it. Take God's word for it. He guarantees it. Don't you want it? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this invitation to abundant life. Lord, first and foremost, if somebody's here today and they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they haven't trusted him as their savior, they haven't put him above their own lives, they haven't laid down their sin and their shame and trusted in the grace that Jesus gives, Lord, that's the most important thing they can do. And I pray they would make that decision today to follow Jesus. Lord, if everybody in here today say they know Jesus, but they would admit they don't have a relationship with the word like they should, Lord, then there's some disconnect in our lives that we can't, we can't let persist. 
And Lord, may you convict us all today and draw us to a place of humility and help us all to realize, wow, the word of God is right there. All I've got to do is open it and of course read it, but it's right there. The word of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God wanting to move from page to person. Lord, the Holy Spirit is in the house today, seeing to it personally that he has moved from page to person. And I pray that somebody would be willing to say, I want that blessing. But Lord, may you remind us all that we can't just pray for it, but we have to look for it and open up to it and be disciplined as a student of your word, allowing you to purify, purify us and revive us. Lord, would you open our eyes to this pathway in front of us? Would you help us to store your word in our hearts that we might not sin? Would you help us to have clarity and avoid regret? It begins with your word and Lord, help us to appreciate it like David did before us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.